If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis and to the ninth chapter, Genesis chapter 9. We're continuing today this ongoing expositional series uh, through the book of Genesis. And today we're at Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 9, beginning in verse 18, wherein Moses writes, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. May God bless today once more the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we stand before thy word today and the hearing of it, we ask that you would give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our hearts and minds, that we might receive thy word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may have heard me tell the story before of when I was in the fifth grade, and for Christmas I got a football. I was into football at that time, like a lot of fifth grade boys probably are, or were in those days. And I asked this for this gift from my parents, and I was delighted to get it. And so I got this brand new football. I went out into the backyard of our house, which sat in a subdivision. And the first thing that I did with this football, before it even once touched the ground and got its first grass stain was that I punted it. I have to say, again, it was a long time ago, but I seem to remember it was a pretty good punt. 
it soared high into the air and came down on the top of the chain link fence that encircled our backyard and divided our yard from our neighbors. And it was one of those chain link fences with the sharp edges of the topmost links standing up. And my brand new football landed on those sharp edges and didn't bounce off the fence, but stuck right there on the top of the fence. As I walked over, I could hear the air hissing as my brand new football deflated. Defeat had been seized from the jaws of victory. That anecdote stands as something of a very dim analogy to something that happened on a vastly, vastly, vastly greater scale that's described here in Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. There is uh, a letdown. There is a failure. There's the, 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 there's the destruction of something that was new, something that was given. We've been tracking over the last several months this tremendous account in Genesis of what we call the primordial, uh, the primeval history. And this comes to us in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the law written by Moses. And we've read how God in his sovereign power made the world in the space of six days and all very good. And how he rested on the Sabbath day, making holy one day in seven as a creation ordinance, as a day of worship. And we saw how God entered into a covenant of life with the first man, Adam. And we saw the first man, the first woman in Genesis 3, break that covenant by eating the forbidden fruit and by sinning against God. And we saw even in Genesis 3 what we could call the first prophecy of the gospel as in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 the Lord had said to the woman and I shall put enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel the first prophecy of Christ and how you would crush the head of Satan while he himself though would be bruised uh, for our transgressions we saw after the fall in Genesis 3 that mankind uh, went on a downward spiral into deeper depths of depravity. With, in Genesis 4, Cain rising up to strike down his brother Abel. And there, the, the, the evil of those days had multiplied so much that we're told finally that God would once who had once looked at the creation, the pre-fall creation and its perfection and declared it to be good, that now he looked upon it with disgust. And we're told in Genesis 6-5 that he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And Moses tells us that God was grieved in his heart and so God justly determined to destroy man 
and not only man, but also all the other creatures whom he had made and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Yet even with that declaration, there had been a flicker of hope in the darkness as Moses recorded in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so I'm sure you well recall as we've been in this series that God commanded Noah to build an ark and to gather a remnant of life, to gather his wife, his three sons and their wives and also representatives from all the animals into the ark. And this ark had but one door and finally when the time had come, God himself came and closed the door And the rains came down for 40 days and 40 nights and the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and a great flood came upon the earth. Moses reports in Genesis 7 verse 23, and Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. Then you'll recall in Genesis 8, we read of how the waters receded And how God commanded Noah and his sons to leave the ark. And uh, he gave them uh, a blessing to allow them to survive. And uh, what then seems to be shining through at that point is the godliness of Noah. The spiritual mindedness of Noah. Because what was the first thing he did after he came out of the ark as it's recorded for us in Genesis 8 and verse 20. He builded an altar unto the Lord. And so we have a high esteem for Noah. Here he's he's a man of worship, a godly man, a spiritually minded man. This was the man who had been described in Genesis 8-9 with these words. Noah was a just man or a righteous man and perfect or blameless in his generations And it says in Genesis 8 9 that Noah walked with God just as his forebear, godly Enoch, had. And then we saw, most recently in this series, just a couple weeks ago, in Genesis 9, how after Noah and his sons had come out of the ark, that God was pleased to bless them. If you look at Genesis 9 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons. How he repeated to them the command that had been given in the pre-fallen world. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He he restated the dominion mandate to mankind. He protected the life of man. You'll remember in Genesis 9 and verse 6. He had said, whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man, even fallen man, though that image is tarnished, fallen man still bears the image of God. And we see the grace and the mercy of God. And then last time we saw how God established his covenant with Noah and with his sons. Remember how he took the initiative. A covenant can only be formed by God. Man can't take the initiative in it. God has to do it. In verse 9, God says, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And that covenant was that God would not destroy the earth again by means of a flood. And remember, he put a token in the heavens, uh, the bow in the clouds, 
to be a visible reminder of this covenant. And we noted how sad it is that that wonderful biblical token has been hijacked and subverted in our day. Nonetheless, it was a new day for humanity, a fresh start for humanity, a reboot for a fallen creation. How many of you have been doing something on your computer and things get fouled up? What do, you, what's, what do you do? Just restart it. Start over. Reboot it. Start anew. And that's what's happening after the flood. There's a, there's a renewal, a restart, a reboot. There's all the joy and hope and optimism of a new start of a Christmas morning. But the football is about to land on the jagged edge of the chain link fence. Because Noah, the man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the just man who had been blameless in his generation and who had walked with God, was about to suffer a fantastic failure. And this account today tells us this pathetic story and it provides a spiritual lesson for us not only about the state of Noah, but also about the state of every man who is in Christ and yet who remains in this life with abiding corruptions within him. So let's look at our passage. And our passage is a pretty short passage, verses 18 through 29. And we can divide it into two parts. The first part, verses 18 through 27, describes what we could call the failure of Noah. And the second part, just two verses, verses 28 and 29, describes the end of Noah. The failure of Noah and then the end of Noah. So let's look at these two parts together. Let's begin with verses 18 through 27, which describes the failure of Noah. We begin in verse 18 with the mention of Noah's three sons. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And so uh, we've had a mention of these three sons. If you go all the way back to Genesis 5, verse 32, that was the first time they were mentioned. In Genesis 5, remember, there's the listing of the line of Adam through Seth and ten generations are listed and it ends with Noah. And it says in Genesis 5.32, and Noah was 500 years old and Noah begat Shem and Ham and Japheth. So they had been mentioned way back in the beginning of this narrative about Noah. They and their wives had been spared in the ark along with their father and their mother. And they had been ordered, as we saw in Genesis 8, verses 15 and 16, to come out of the ark. We saw in Genesis 9, 1, they had received God's blessing. They had received the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And when that covenant was made with Noah, it was also made with them. If you look at uh, verse uh, uh, 8 and 9 of chapter 9, it says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him saying, and I behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And so they had been part of the covenant that had been made with Noah. And so we begin with these three sons. And you'll notice also in verse 18 that there's a, there's a note about one of them in particular, about Ham. And it says, and Ham is the father of Canaan. That just seems to come out of nowhere. We don't hear about the sons of the 
of the other sons. Uh, but we do have this note about, about uh, Ham being the father of one called Canaan. And this isn't by accident. This is, this is foreshadowing something that is to come. The name Canaan will hold significance for anyone who knows the Old Testament and for anyone who knows especially the later account of the Israelites. Because the Canaanites, the descendant of Canaan, will be in the promised land. They will be the enemies of Israel. They will take over the land while the Israelites are away in bondage in Egypt. And when Israel returns in the conquest, uh, they will have to enter into the land of Canaan. So from Ham, from one of... From one of the three sons of Noah will come mortal enemies of God's people. How will this be? How will such a disruption take place that's being foreshadowed for us in the very first verse of our passage? In verse 19, however, we return more hopefully and more positively to mention the three sons. It says of them, verse 19, and these are the three sons of Noah. And it also says of them in the second half of that verse, and of them was the whole earth overspread. That's positive in that we see that there was obedience to the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. That from the line of Noah, from these three men, from Noah and his sons and their wives, there would come all of humanity. They would populate the earth. Noah was the tenth in the line of Seth. Seth from Adam, from Noah now and his sons, the whole earth is populated. As Paul will put it when he goes to Athens, as recorded in Acts 17 verse 26, that God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. There is now in verse 20, a specific mention of Noah's vocation in the post-flood world. As we read in verse 20, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. Noah becomes a farmer. That's a very noble calling. We have some people who do some farming here. In the pre-fallen world, uh, Adam, had been given a commandment to be a tender of the earth, to be uh, a caretaker of the earth. In Genesis 2.15, we read, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And so it seems fitting that Noah would be one who would be tending the earth. We might also recall that after the fall in Genesis 4, verse 2, that righteous Abel was a keeper of the sheep, Whereas Cain was a tiller of the ground. And Noah, likewise here, is described as a husbandman. Literally in Hebrew, a man of the soil, a man of the earth. He works the ground. He plants a vineyard. It's the mention of the vineyard in verse 20. That is another foreshadowing or foreboding or warning of some disruption that is to come. There are many things he might have planted. He might have planted apple trees or orange trees or, or figs, 
or olives, but he planted a vineyard. And from the vineyard came the grapes. And from the grapes, through fermentation and man's ingenuity, came the making of wine and other intoxicating beverages. And this, this description in verse 20, that he built this vineyard, this uh, will prepare the way, it will grease the skids towards disaster and heartache for Noah and his family. And we begin to read of this in verse 21 where there are two kinds of sins or spiritual failures that are noted. And the first of these is likely the impetus for the second. First it says in verse 21, And he drank of the wine and was drunken. Noah fell into drunkenness. Now the scriptures on one hand speak positively of wine as they speak positively of all the fruit of the earth. Psalm 104 in verse 15 says that wine makes glad the heart of a man. The Apostle Paul uh, commended the, the healthy benefits of drinking wine to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 23 when he said, Use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. On the other hand, however, the scriptures clearly condemn the abuse of such by constantly warning against drunkenness. It's not that he planted a vineyard. It's not that he drank wine. It's that he fell into drunkenness. And again, the scriptures will later speak much of this, especially in the Proverbs, that great book of practical wisdom that we ha have within the Bible. If you're looking for a good book to read through this year, uh, many people make a pledge to read the Bible, or read some part of it. Uh, reading the Psalms, reading the book of Proverbs would be an excellent thing to do. But in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. <clears throat> One of the most ancient and accurate descriptions of the dangers of drunkenness, or maybe what we would today call alcoholism, is described in Proverbs chapter 23. In fact, it's such a striking description, it sounds like it could be somebody standing up in an AA meeting, giving a testimony of some of the, the problems that they've had with drinking. And so if you look at Proverbs 23, verse 29, we read these words. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? And this is a rhetor these are rhetorical questions. The drunkard. Why does he have wounds without cause? He stumbles, he falls, he hurts himself. Um, he has contentions. He's, he, he, some people respond by being contented, others by being contentious. Uh, he, he, it shows in the way he looks. It hurts his appearance, his health. And the question is answered. Proverbs 29, 23 rather, verse 30. 
Who is like this? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. And then the the psalmist writes, verse 31 of Proverbs 23. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. When it giveth his color in the cup. When it moveth itself aright. He's not condemning particularly red wine over white wine. He's, He's saying when it's strong. When it has the power to overcome you and, and, and harm you. So he says in verse 32, At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Drunkenness removes the inhibitions Needs men to do unseemly things. Verse 34. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of a sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mass. It's a, it's a tremendous ancient description of somebody dealing with a hangover or with the spirit of drunkenness. The, the room is moving. It's like I'm trying to sleep in the top of a mass of a ship as it moves, as it swings back and forth. He continues, Proverbs 23, verse 35, to say of this drunken man. He says, they have stricken me. Shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Seems so numb that he can't even feel the pain of a blow. And he says, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. As soon as I wake up, I'll just sink, I'll seek out another drink. Well, it's, it's an amazing description, ancient description of the dangers of drunkenness. In the New Testament, it's not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, there are condemnations of drunkenness as the way of pagans and not the way of believers. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13, verse 12 and following writes, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In other words, Paul was saying, hey, when you're a Christian, you start to live like a Christian. You put away the the ways of the worldly folk. You don't need drunkenness. You have contentedness in Christ. Put away those things. You're not living for that anymore. You're a new creature in Christ. Demonstrate that. Show that. And that that passage you read from Romans is, is interesting. Those of you who know church history know that that was the text through which Augustine of Hippo, the great North African theologian, was converted. He was walking through a garden one day and he heard some children playing nearby and he thought he heard one of them say, tole lege, take up and read. There was, and there was a Bible that was there on a table and he just took the Bible. I don't recommend doing this, but probably we've all done this at some point. He just opened the Bible and went, you know, and it was Romans 13 verses 12 through 14. 
that he he read. And he had been partying. He had been a a partier and drinker, a womanizer. And all of a sudden that verse was, was graciously used of the Lord to change him. Those who are members of our church, if you come to our church conference next Sunday, you'll hear us recite together as we always do at our annual meeting, our membership covenant. And in that membership covenant, we make a commitment to one another, as the, our covenant puts it, not to abuse ourselves through addiction or excess. It doesn't say that wine is evil, but it says we will not abuse ourselves through drunkenness, through excess. We will not be drunkards. That's the first sin, and it's the impetus for the second. The second one is described uh, much more um, subtly here. It says in verse 21, and he was uncovered within his tent. He was uncovered within his tent. This indicates some further kind of sinful behavior, probably relating to some kind of sexual immorality or lascivious behavior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul condemned those in Corinth who, as he put it, have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Lasciviousness referring to overt and offensive sexual activities or desires. In a world that revels in oversharing salacious information about such things, I love the discretion of Moses. He says simply again in verse 21, and he was uncovered within his tent. Everything does not need to be said all the time, does it? That might be hard for those uh, who live in our oversharing culture to comprehend, but Moses is very discreet. With verse 22, we shift to the reaction of his sons to his drunkenness and to his nakedness, the sinful behavior of their father. And according to Moses, one of the sons acted in a dishonorable manner while the other two acted in an honorable manner. We start off with the one who acted in a dishonorable manner. In verse 22 it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Notice the mention again in this verse that Ham was the father of Canaan. Now we don't know specifically what the sin of Ham was. Was it a violation of the fifth commandment of some sort? The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. He saw his father in this vulnerable and shameful state and he did nothing to intervene or nothing to protect him. Moses does tell us, however, that Shem and Japheth, the other two sons, acted in a more honorable manner. And that's described for us in verse 23, where it says, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. They took this garment, they went backward, they covered the nakedness of their father, and so with their backs turned, 
They did not see their father's nakedness. Again, we don't know all the details. We don't need to know all of them. But what, what we need to know is that they acted in a more honorable manner. And then we read in verse 24. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. That description there of him awaking from his wine takes us back to Proverbs 23 and that picture of the bewildered drunkard. There's the morning after. He comes to his senses and he knew that his younger son had done something uh, that was dishonorable unto him. And from there, Noah then delivers a prophecy regarding his son. He doesn't curse his son, but he prophesies that because of the sin, God will send a punishment, a consequence upon his son. And it's interesting that even in his, even in his depraved state here, even as a drunkard, uh, Noah is still God's prophet. And so look at verse 25. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. <coughs> he says that really it's Ham's son, Canaan, will be a curse upon him. He will be a servant of servants. In Hebrew, this is a way of of saying the lowest of servants. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says vanities of vanities, all is vanity. And it means, it means everything is the lowest vanity. Here, he will be a servant of servants. He will be the lowest of servants unto his brethren. One might ask why the curse comes upon Canaan and not Ham directly. Perhaps the idea here is that since Ham had acted sinfully against his father, now, God seems it to be fitting for Ham's son to suffer the consequences. Since a son had sinned against his father, it was fitting that that man's son would be cursed. For the descendants of Ham by Canaan, we can look ahead to chapter 10, the passage we'll, God willing we'll look at next week, but we can anticipate it. Look ahead for a second to Genesis 10. And look at verse 15, which begins to describe the line of Canaan. And you'll notice there in the list of these names, uh, look at verse 16. There's the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites are mentioned. And if you keep going on down, uh, you'll eventually see uh, the, the mention in verse 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it, it is from uh, the line of Ham via Canaan. That there will be a depraved, a debauched group of people who will, uh, who will inhabit the promised land and, and whom the Israelites will later have to war against. The salt and the wounds is not merely the curse that will come upon Ham through Canaan, but also a corresponding and peculiar blessing of the Lord that comes upon Shem. And so look at um, the, the next verse there in verse 26. It says, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. There's a blessing or God is blessed 
by means of Shem. And that's another way of simply saying that Shem is also blessed of God. Whereas Canaan will be part of those who are opposing God and His will. Shem and those that come from Him will be those who bless the Lord. Again, this anticipates what will happen later uh, in the history of Israel. And what's, what will be the greatest blessing that will be for Shem? From Shem will come, uh, his descendants will come, the people of Israel, the Semites or the Shemites. But also, what is the other great blessing? It's not mentioned here, but we can anticipate it. What is the other great blessing that will come? Who will come from the line of Shem? The Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ will come from this line. If you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 36, you see Shem listed in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. But for Ham and for Canaan, on the other hand, we see the ramifications of sin manifested through multiple generations. One man sins and then the consequences are received by his sons and his sons' sons and on and on it goes. This is expanded upon slightly in verse 27. As Noah is reported to say that Japheth too will be blessed, but he will dwell in the tents of Shem, and it will be the line of Shem that will be most blessed, presumably for Shem's more noble behavior or simply as the result of God's sovereign election, whereas the line of Ham through Canaan will be the most cursed. Look again at verse 27. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. What we are really seeing here is that sin, in whatever form it takes, whether in drunkenness, or in lasciviousness, or in a thousand other ways, that it causes destruction and it causes harm for all parties involved and it lingers and does damage for generations. Wow, this was supposed to be hopeful. Noah and his wife and his son survived the flood. They were in the ark. They were blessed by God. They were given a dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply. They were given a covenant. But now the air is rushing out of the football. And the promise seems ruined by Noah's failure. But what we're really being reminded of here is that though God preserved a remnant by means of the ark, those men were still going to live in what we could call a post-fall world. That there would still be remaining corruptions in them. The theologians speak about something called original sin. That is, that we inherit by virtue of ordinary generation from our parents and line all the way back to Adam and Eve that we inherit a said nature. <clears throat> and then what is more, once we have opportunity, we commit actual transgressions. Even if one is a believer, 
In this life, he still has, she still has remaining corruptions within her, within him. This is what's being revealed to us. Let's look at the second part of our text, last part of it, verses 28-29, which I've called the end of Noah. It says in verse 28, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Despite Noah's failure, the Lord did not immediately end the life of Noah. You know, he would have been just to have done that. He would have been just to have stricken Noah down at the moment of his failure, but he didn't. He extended his life for 350 years after the flood. You'll remember if you look back at Genesis 5, verse 32, that by his 500th year, Noah had had his three sons. And in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it says that the flood began in the 600th year of his life. And so now we're told he lived another 350 years. We talked before in this series about why these great ages for men of the past. And one of the things we suggested was that they were living in a time that was much closer to, to, the, to the time of the fall. And at some point, the Lord in his wisdom chose to circumscribe the days of a man's life. We see that re- reflected in places like uh, Psalm 139 when it says that the, the days of a man's life may be 70 years or 80 years if by reason of strength. But in these days, men lived long lives. And so uh, he was able to live a long life. And it says, if you look at verse 29, and all the days of Noah were 950 years. But then look at the very last statement. And he died. Do you remember when we were in Genesis 5? And we were looking at the generations uh, from Adam through Seth that led up to Noah. And remember at the end of every one of the descriptions of these men of old, the last statement was, and he died. Except for Enoch. It says of Enoch, he walked with God and was not for God took him. The end of every man who lives in this post-fallen world is going to be death. What is it that Paul said, Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. Friends, we have no guarantee that, 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 that we're going to make it through the rest of this year, do we? We have no, no, uh, we have no um, uh, substance to say we'll make it through today. The wages of sin is death. This may be the last sermon I ever preach. Maybe the last one you'll ever hear. It says of Noah, and he died, and he died. Noah was a just man, but he had remaining corruptions within him, and the wages of sin is death, and Noah went the way of all flesh, as we all will, should Christ tarry. It's funny how sometimes, particularly this time of the year, people announce that, let's look back on the past year, and look at these famous people who died, And we're like, I'm so surprised that he died. How shocking. No surprise to it, is there? What did you think was going to happen? It's kind of sad when you're, you'd be my age, and the the people that were like celebrities that you watched on television when you were 12 or 13, all of a sudden you realize, hey, nobody knows these people anymore. My kids are like, who are these guys? And then they start dying off, and you're like, oh, well, they're about my age. Hmm. One day, there's going to be an epitaph that's going to be put at the end of everyone here in this room, should Christ tarry. 
And he died. And he died. Well, friends, we'll work through the passage. Let me hasten, if I can, to, to make a few applications. I hope by the Holy Spirit's help that you've already drawn some of these. What spiritual applications might we draw from this description of Noah's failure? We are reminded here of a reality for all men, even redeemed men. As Noah was, so we are. There are remaining corruptions within us. Noah found, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a just or a justified man, but he had remaining corruptions and he fell into grievous sin. Noah's story reminds us of the accounts of many of the saints of the past, but one that comes to mind immediately is one who will come through his line, through the line of Shem, and that is King David. David was described as a man after God's own heart. He wrote at least 74 of the Psalms in the 150 Psalms of the Psalter. He was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. But if you know the story of David in 2 Samuel, you'll know that there was a season in his life when he fell into adultery with Bathsheba. He arranged the death of her husband. So he was a, an adulterer and a murderer. And when he was confronted with that sin by the prophet Nathan, though, and Nathan looked at him and said, Thou art the man, you are the man. David, though, responded by repenting in sackcloth and ashes. He wrote Psalm 51. Great psalm for the person who grieves over sin. And he pleaded with the Lord, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Think about the Apostle Paul. After Psalm 51, the next passage of the grieving sinner ought to read is, is Romans 7. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, would write in Romans 7 about a struggle, a civil war in his life. He spoke in Romans 7 about doing what he knew wasn't right and also failing to do things that he knew were right. Why? Because he says there's sin dwelling in me. <coughs> At the end of Romans 7, verse 24, he wrote, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? That's the football hitting the, hitting the, the chain link fence. But it doesn't end. Romans 7 doesn't end with despair. It ends in Romans 7, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now friends, don't, don't hear this sermon wrongly. The story of Noah and David and Paul is not a warrant 
for unfettered pursuit of sin. It's not a warrant for presumption upon the grace of God. In Romans 6.1, Paul will write and ask, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, God forgives sin. Well, it's my job to sin then, right? God's a great forgiver of sin. I'll just keep sinning. I'll just abound in sin. So that I might, God might be greater in forgiving more. That's foolish talk, isn't it? How did Paul answer that, that rhetorical question? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's what Paul said. For every Noah who truly knows and loves the Lord, but who succumbs to sin, whether drunkenness or lasciviousness or a thousand other sins, his only hope is the righteous life of Christ that is given to him by grace through faith and that allows him to repent of his sin and to strive after new obedience. Noah's failure, like all our spiritual failures in the end, only shines a greater light upon Christ's victory. Your failures only show and shine a greater light upon the victory of Christ. Isn't that awesome to consider? What a wonderful thing to consider on the first Lord's Day of a new year. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks today for thy word and for uh, this report, record, uh, of the, the life of thy servant, Noah, even his failure, but also thy sovereignty, that, that promise given in Genesis 3.15 of the, the, the seed of the woman would come through the line of Shem and a mighty Savior would arise. And so today we thank thee for Christ. Help us as we ponder and meditate upon this today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.